a home is different to Ho-Chunks because it's where the family is. Even if it falls into disrepair, Ho-Chunks still believe that there's still this spirit of, of gathering there. I'm Damon. I'm Daniel. And welcome to Climate Change Makers, presented by Elevate, who for over 20 years have worked to create a just and equitable world in which everyone has clean and affordable heat, power, and water in their homes and communities, no matter who they are or where they live. We are in the midst of our second season of the show, talking with some of the country's most impactful environmental justice visionaries and workers about what ideas guide their work, what strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. In this episode, we have Neil Whitegall. Neil is the executive director of the Ho-Chunk Housing and Community Development Agency, or HHCDA. HHCDA fosters a strong, healthy community of which Ho-Chunk Nation members can be proud through providing members with quality, affordable housing and programs that help meet the Ho-Chunk Nation's social, cultural, and community needs. It was really great to talk to Neil and to not only learn some really important and beautiful history of Native and Indigenous peoples, particularly the Ho-Chunk people, but also to take that history and to learn how he and his organization are navigating some of the systems and structures that are in place today to meet his community's needs. You can find out more about their work at hhcda.com. With that said, let's hop into our conversation with Neil, who starts off by answering the same question we always start with. In this time, how is the world treating him and how is he treating the world? It's a weird time, you know, I guess in, the, in, in my life that, you know, I never thought we'd be battling a pandemic or, you know, but in, it's life is life and we are kind of going through it. I guess there's no time like now this is kind of how I was brought up. Like we're, we're just in it, you know, you can't necessarily do anything to change, you know, your circumstances, but you, you can change yourself to respond to them. So building off of that in, in this time, let's do the companion to time, which is place. Um, you know, we're not in the same location. I think it's really important that we ground this conversation in where you are and where the work takes place. For you, what is the space where you do what you do? I'm in uh, Western Wisconsin, Toma, Wisconsin, but uh, I guess in, in our place here representing or uh, working um, for the Ho-Chunk Nation, Ho-Chunk people, uh, it's a, a tribe. We call ourselves the Ho-Chunk. Many people used to call us Winnebago's, but that was the French and Algonquin name given to what Ho-Chunks were. But we've always been, our, our origin story starts us in Wisconsin, and this is where we've always remained. They've shipped us off to other places. We have another the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska, and uh, that's where the Ho-Chunk reservation is. But uh, Ho-Chunks that came back to Wisconsin weren't supposed to be here and government just got tired of rounding us up and let us stay here. So years later, we formed a, we're recognized as a, as a tribal government. And so uh, we, we were the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska. And then through empowerment, we said, you know, why do we have to be the name that others gave us? So why not just use our own name? So we are the Ho-Chunk people. I guess loosely interpreted into English, it means the people of the big voice or people of the original voice. It's a good name for a podcaster, honestly. <laughs> yeah. like we picked yeah, the, the right person. Voice. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I appreciate that history and and, and want to see if there's any more that we can dig out because, you know, on, on the show and in a lot of our work, um, always humbly trying to take on the responsibility of if we're going to be in this land, 
we have to recognize that there's been a lack of recognition or that it is our responsibility um, to be in tune with the peoples that have stewarded and maintained these lands for centuries. Um, and so even just hearing that narrative of like reclaiming naming, I think is so important. Um, so even in trying to do some some research on the HHCDA, I just was going in and looking through and learning a little bit about how the Ho-Chuck government is established. And if if you could, like, is there any part of that history of reestablishing or claiming sovereignty um, that is connected to the work that you're doing with the HHCDA? Um, well, one of the neat features of HHCDA, we're Ho-Chunk Housing and Community Development Agency. We're a nonprofit, you know, uh, to use HUD's acronym, we're a tribally designated housing entity. And uh, what that means is uh, the HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development, funds our, our program through this bill called the Nahasda Bill, it started in 1999, predominantly to provide affordable housing to Native Americans. Uh, it's a block grant, so basically every federally recognized tribe receives it. But prior to that, we were a housing authority. So Ho-Chunk Housing Authority uh, was created really by one of the first acts of the newly formed government. And the reason they formed the government was to take advantage of uh, HUD grants. So HHCDA and before that HCHA, we really, um, in a sense, started the organization of government. Again, before then, there were Ho-Chunks or Winnebago's living in Wisconsin, but we didn't have a tribe. And so there really is, uh, from our perspective of of being part of the community and, you know, that in the government, we take care of our communities. The reason that we have our housing villages, our affordable housing villages, but, uh, you know, from the tribal government grew from there and being able to take advantage of, of the opportunities for that Native American tribes have been able to, to take advantage. Gaming has been a, a boom for the nation. Uh, we have, I think, five casinos through Western Wisconsin and Wisconsin in general. But also uh, being able to purchase land through that gaming opportunities or grants and HACDA has always been along in partnership with the, the Ho-Chunk Nation. So having both community leaders come from our organization and go on to the tribal government, be elected officials, there's pros and cons to that because we are a federally funded agency um, and we have to follow uh, you know, the bureaucracy and the, the income limits and just the different rules that, you know, I, I say you know, when your uncle gives you money, Uncle Sam gives you money, you know, and every once in a while he'll ask you, what are you doing with your money? You know, if you take money from your uncle, you got to tell him, right? You got to say, okay, this is what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if he's Uncle Sam or Uncle Joe, you know, that, that's, those are some of the, the issues that we had had because as Native Americans, uh, for whatever reason, the U.S. government does it, you know, they could have simply ignored and say, you know, no longer are Native Americans Native Americans. You guys are just American citizens. But going back to some of the very first uh, Supreme Court cases um, that established Indian law and, and established that the U.S. government has an obligation, and they've called it a trust obligation of these treaties and saying um, Native Americans are like wards of the state or wards of the federal government and needs protection. So with those, they, there's four fundamental trust responsibilities that the U.S. government gave to Native Americans, healthcare, you know, food, education, and housing, and land protections is kind of fallen into that also. So the funny thing with that, so, you know, reservations, people talk about reservations or, or Native American land. Native Americans really can't own land that's reservation. And that's, that's one of these weird things that the government protects us. And so if you look on a map, 
and you talk about what a reservation is or my family's allotment land that was given to our, you know, in the 1900s and say, here's your 40 acres. It's saying this is Indian land held in trust by the United States government. The U.S. government is going to tell Native Americans how, you know, that this is this is the rules for your land. So there's advantages. You don't have to pay taxes on trust land, but you can never own it. You can never will it. You can't take a loan out for it. So there's kind of like this holdback and the government always says, well, how come Native Americans can't have economic opportunities other people can? Well, for one, you know, I can't take a business loan out. I can't take a second mortgage on my house to start a business. You know, how, how much wealth is derived everywhere else in the country. I, I say this a lot. I think what you see now today, you see income restrictions for Native American housing. HUD, you know, Housing and Urban Development, started 1968 in the war on poverty. And, and somehow uh, Native American housing got put into that. I think it was that way because if you go back 50 years ago, 60 years ago, there probably wasn't too many Native Americans that would be over income. And, you know, and, and of, of course, the people at HUD are great people and they they do a great job, but you know their whole mission is to help um, uh, low-income families. And so when you start saying, "Well, what Native Americans are a little different because we have economic opportunities, we have different people coming back," and if you have a reservation that was completely built with um, HUD housing, and that means you can no longer have any over-income families come back to the reservation because there's no housing availability, there's no loan programs for them, there's no housing programs. Or in a sense, if they income out, say they go to school or they they do all the things you're supposed to do, that means no more affordable housing for those people because you can't rent to a person that's over income. Where else are they going to rent? They move outside the reservation boundary where there are rentals and there's houses that they can take mortgages out on. And so you you always have this economic drain from your reservations. And that's one thing I always try to, to, to get the word out. In 1846, when... The Ho-Chunk ceded, you know, from Green Bay to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and uh, down by Galena and over to north of Chicago. So that big rectangle area that was Ho-Chunk, Ho-Chunk area and a little bit into Iowa and Minnesota, when they ceded that, prop- that property, that land, nowhere in those, those treaty documents did it say only low-income Ho-Chunks had to go. You know, Ho-Chunks didn't put the caveat like, oh, and only low-income Norwegians or Germans can come here because they put... Indian housing into HUD housing, I think there was just this disconnect of, well, Native Americans will never be over income. You know, so that's one thing I've always tried to champion or whenever I talk to a congressman or a senator, just pushing that those lines up a little bit higher to have more opportunities for working families or up and coming working families or entrepreneurs on Indian lands with these with these dollars that provides for that trust responsibility. It sounds like it's the unintended consequences of that assumption that you so clearly articulated that when we think about housing for Native Americans, it inherently means that they won't be above that threshold. And the dangers beyond just the like moral <laughs> harm of that assumption, um, but but also then what that does in, in limiting the opportunities for people to have communities where there is a range of income and people are able to look out for each other and build thriving communities you mentioned the word trust a bunch, which I think is a very loaded word in this context. And for this language to be framed around that trust, it, it makes clear, at least to me, this contradiction that that I see you navigating beautifully. We're receiving resources from an institution that is limiting through either intentional or bureaucratic means what can be done with that money. And then we see the implications of that on the people that we're in community with. 
How do you think about that contradiction? And where does this kind of balance of resources and sovereignty play out in your work? It is a challenge because uh, that's why I, I always refer to the, the uncle. You know, he says, "Hey, I've got this available for you." And there's that pride, or you're saying sovereignty. It's like, you know, and Ho Chunks are very proud, and they've pushed their sovereignty greatly. You know, with the casinos and the ability to almost say, "We don't want to bother with Uncle Sam's money anymore. We have our own money. We have our, you know, our own pride to do these things on ourselves." And the Ho Chunk Nation themselves, outside of the federal grants, have done great things. Um, you know, and and being able to start after-school programs, uh, nutrition programs, scholarship programs, um, you know, they're a TAU or the tribal aging. So they, they continue to provide health insurance for tribal elders and, and a food program for elders and, and these Head Start programs. So there's all these programs that they've done uh, with some grant dollars, but mostly tribal funded for the last uh, about 25 years. And by back land, they've done about 1,200 of their own mortgages. They started their own uh, mortgage programs and 1200 mortgages and help people, you know, without the federal funds. So there's always been that, that sovereignty or that, that pride, we, we can do this, but also in, in taking advantage of that, you know, again, saying, well, if uncle Sam is going to give us money or if he's, you know, here's a, a federal program, why not write the grants? Why not compete for them? And to go ahead and utilize that to go along with the nation is doing. And that's, we're part of what HHCDA has done, you know, to tie into the topic here with, of solar panels. So we've used basically all of our solar panel development through grants. And even though our solar projects don't make as much sense if you were paying for it yourself out of your own pocket or taking a loan out, you know, we have all these advisors saying, it doesn't make sense you're putting a four kilowatt system on one house and you have 90 houses close together. You should just tie them all together. But we wanted to, to again, use the federal dollars to say, well, we're more interested in providing savings for those low-income families. And so it might not make sense to you know, somebody on the outside, but it makes sense to that family that's saving $30. And that $30 a month is $30 a month that they can use for something else. You know, they can, they can buy toothpaste or they can buy... You know, they could buy more Burger King for breakfast or whatever they're going to use those funds for. But I think that's how we've looked at kind of balancing, well, we're taking federal dollars and we don't we don't want to be beholden to federal dollars, but we've been able to take advantage of that from developing our more housing units, putting more money in our parks and in our our, our roads and our sidewalks and, and some of those community activities. So I, I, I do uh, appreciate hearing the way in which your agency is working to like very practically deal with the economic realities of your community and, and your people. I, I want to like take a bigger step out and talk about the land a little bit. I, I really appreciate the narrative of reclaiming and rebuilding a connection to a land uh, from which your people were historically displaced and all of the development and infrastructure to like sustain and build community. And I think usually in other spaces when folks talk about development, land is seen as like an absence or a capital investment where just building can happen. Uh, and with that, we've seen a lot of harm or a lot of counterproductive efforts in terms of the entire environment and health of all organisms and even people relative to the land. So I'm curious with this history and with this deeper connection, when you're doing some work of development, is there ways in which HCDA or the larger community approaches development in a way that has a deeper reverence for the, the living organism that is the land that we depend on? The protections and um, 
the cultural aspects of, of Ho-Chunk, again, are very communal. You know, we, we kind of do everything in preserving the little land that we actually have as, as a people. We can buy land, you know, fee simple land or just, you know, the regular land right down the road next to Walmart. But it doesn't have that same type of, of feeling or it doesn't have that same type of, of ownership to, to Ho-Chunks. And they would like to develop on their own land. So they do a lot with environmental protections, of course. Uh, we go beyond. I don't know necessarily if Native Americans are any better stewards of land, you know, or like a romantic myth, like, oh, yeah, Native Americans are so cool. And, you know, and like they're taking care of land. But what you have is that connection because land is so valuable. It's almost that that ownership side is true. Like we hear Native Americans never really thought they owned the land anyway, you know, that this is just a place that they they lived on and you know our, our houses aren't that wealth it really a home is different to ho-chunks because it's where the family is you know so it becomes like this intergenerational home or place even if it falls into disrepair ho-chunks still believe that there's still this spirit of, of gathering there and so you'll see these houses and it looks like man what's that old house that nobody goes in over there you know shouldn't they tear that down and it's just left to go back to the earth in a sense and that there's traditional guidelines or traditional rules that say you shouldn't destroy an old house you know you should just let it go back because these generations before are still gathering there and so we're losing a little bit of that as you get get on and then people call it well that's an abandoned house and you know there's rodents and stuff like there but you know part of that teaching of why these things are important to us and maybe that's the good part about not having a value of being able to sell that land or being able to sell that house and it's it's kind of a shame because some of the things that i'm teaching part of hhcda is the value of a house and why you should be a homeowner and not a renter because you're going to build equity and it's the single most investment you know you're ever going to make you know and that kind of takes away from that, some of those meanings you know to creating that that home on on our, our tribal lands and part of that is another reason they see a lot of our tribal members when I do give them that training, they're saying, well, maybe I shouldn't build on my family plot. Maybe I should build in town because I could build more equity. I don't know if you would call it reverse gentrification, but so you 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 have people like kind of like, oh yeah, it makes more sense to move into town, you know, and um, not not live here and where we're trying to say, well, no, that we want you to have an investment in this community. We want you to be able to show, you know, you can build a house and you can have this Ho-Chunk dream. I don't say an American dream, but you, know, you, can, you can do it right here on your own land. And there is a pride. Um, so Ho-Chunk stories go back three ice ages. And if you talk to geologists as well, that's impossible. Three ice ages is 25,000 years. And, you know, but that's, there's Ho-Chunk stories that have been carried on. And so other geologists say, well, mostly the longest it could be is 10,000 years ago. So even if you say back before Ho-Chunks were Ho-Chunks, 10,000 years. My family has this little, this airship land or my boys and I go hunting along the Black River. And so there is that, that power that we have that's connected that 10,000 years ago, you know, my forefathers were hunting in the same spot or working or building or toiling. Um, and to, to say, well, yeah, well, I, I don't hunt with a stick bone and arrow that I made myself. I bought it at the that's a sporting store, but we're still getting to enjoy. And I think that's lost on a lot of maybe even people that aren't thinking like, wow, like here's this, this land that because the federal government says I, I can hunt it and own it, you know, that this is the land that still at least 10,000 years ago, my, my forefathers were here kind of doing the same thing and probably being mad that their 
their sons missed a deer also, you know. They stepped so, in some mud and went up to yeah. the ankle, they're yeah. slashing through. Yeah. There's that connection that we have, you know, and I, I think to my daughter-in-law, and, the, and it's really weird because I never thought like this before. My daughter-in-law, she's a, a non-Ho-Chunk and she's a she's a, a great young woman. And her dad on the other side of this Black River, grandfather came from Norway, was an immigrant and was able to set up a homestead and pile land. And so we, we were hunting on their land. So in a sense, this one family now has 400 acres of land that we were walking on for about an hour doing a deer drive. And like, it was owned by one family. I never thought about it before. Like, wow, this is the difference between immigrants coming to America or people that have been here forever, you know, when we've got our one spot. But I think the the neat thing to think about though, not, not, not bitter about it, but it was just kind of really made me think. So my grandchildren, even from this non-native um, lady, Norwegian immigrant, my grandchildren will be still here and hopefully in the same community. And that uh, the Ho-Chunk way of life, it, it doesn't matter, you know, it's not like what the government calls us, it's what we teach our grand, our children. They will be you know, still in the same area and, and, you know, does land or who owns land or does who walks what land, does it really matter? Will it matter in a thousand years? And I can't really think that by my, you know, descendants will think about that either. Like they'll probably be like, oh, yeah, who, what a funny concept. They used to think they own land, you know, and maybe it'll be full circle. But. Yeah. Well, and, and it goes to something that you said earlier, which is that like, it's not about this, like, purity of things being this romanticized version of what it is. It's about what is the actual practical relationship to our lives in this place. And if that's the continuity that feels available and and here, then that's, like you said, a thousand years from now, that's real continuity. That's not what something is called. That's what something is. Right. Yeah. One, just as an amateur geology fan <laughs> <laughs> no this ice age shit is exciting yeah no, I, 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 it's just in the last few years the conventional wisdom about how long these continents have been inhabited by human beings there's just so much more evidence that points towards the indigenous wisdom of surviving multiple ice ages seems much more likely than what some of the like the standards of what geology had said for the last 50 years so i'm on your side back three ice ages ago and what a way to measure time through ice ages that 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 speaks to connection oh when do you want to meet up oh like, like <laughs> quarter past ice age around the corner <laughs> and, and also just a quick thing that i heard that like i don't know if it's a real thing yet but the idea of reverse gentrification is <laughs> something that just really excites me and tickles my fancy like i don't know if that's something that we're manifested yet, but just as a goal of like, we need to reverse gentrify or reverse the process of gentrification. Just that language was something I didn't want to move past. That, that excited me. And again, another another rabbit hole. Um, so this this whole, I think it's Ice Age 2. The film? Yeah. yeah the the, the film, the, the, the kids show. <laughs> where oh, you've been, you been, you been there for three sequels to the, the, the film Ice Age. We so misunderstood. The, the whole franchise. So the, 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 the second one though, the second Ice Age, there's a story about how they they have to get away because, uh, you know, the ice is melting, you know, and then there's this, uh, the glacier breaks and there's a big flood and they're on this great big piece of lock. So that is so weird because in our family, I'm going to go back one more step. So I'm talking about Ho-Chunk stories and, and Ho-Chunk. So, you know, in Wisconsin, we have four completely different tribes. 
And so my perspective or where I'm speaking is just from a Ho-Chunk tribal member. And I, and I must say, I'm not even that good of a tribal member. So just to let you know that if you want to talk to tribal members, I, none of I us are some, that good members I, of our tribe. I got, some, I got some, I got some heavy hitters that are way more. <laughs> than I am, so, but um, to, to give you that perspective, you know, so, sure. uh, cause it's, it's sometimes uh, people do kind of lump native Americans together. The generalities are, you know, that we were here pre-Columbus, you know, and I think that's where it kind of stops because just the same thing as somebody from Spain is not from somebody from Macedonia or somebody from, from Russia. So completely different cultures and, you know, our blood might be red on the inside, but the, the cultures that we, we, we have are, are different, but to the ice age story, the ice age too. So if you ever seen that cartoon or that, that, so, you know, animation, um, my family has stories and we've passed, you know, different families have different stories that they pass down. And uh, my great grandfather who lived in Tomo, Wisconsin, actually, um, he had heard this story from his grandfather. It was the Ice Age story. If you're familiar with the Wisconsin Dells and if you've ever been up there as a kid and seen how beautiful it looks. Uh, so the Wisconsin glacier had melted and you had Lake Wisconsin, which basically went from the Wisconsin Dells north that Ho-Chunks for generations had to, you know, figure out how to, you know, survive in this great big lake and um, go from place to place. Uh, and one day while their family was farming or, or harvesting crops, they, the, there was an earthquake or the, they said the earth shook and there was this huge crack it wasn't noticed for days but they noticed then the lake started going down and down and down and that's how the how wisconsin dells gets its beauty and it drained out lake wisconsin and created this wisconsin wasteland you know that uh, the, the first settlers came here and said well we're not going to stay in this this swamps you know but what the ho-chunk saw finally in the basin or the the the, the floor of the lake there was these monsters they called it it was just you know there was these monsters and we say grandmothers for just about everything are gagas so these these women wept because you know these monsters they felt bad because they there was not they weren't going to survive or you know there was no way that these giant fish and i always wonder like what were these giant fish you know are they giant surgeons or were they something that we don't see and they um they had advised these these so these grandmothers these gagas had advised the men not don't don't eat them you know like just take what we normally take and so but Ho-Chunks in, in Ho-Chunk history have always done the wrong thing. So we talk about the stewards of the land. So we've always done the wrong thing, you know, <laughs> culturally. And maybe that's just the stories that are relayed back to us uh, of saying, like, don't do that because you guys, you know, so the, the practical nature of, of we, we learn by mistakes instead of, you know, by doing. And so these these ladies that said, you know, that's, that's, that's wrong, you know, let the earth reclaim these bodies, you know, let them go back, you know, and so... Ho-Chunks then were plagued for generations after that, you know, because they ate these monsters that they weren't supposed to eat. And, and that's the other thing too. Ho-Chunks are always eating things they're not supposed to eat. <laughs> these cautionary tales. <laughs> like I can understand, you know, you tell a kid, hey, don't eat what you're not supposed to eat because you'll be plagued for generations. They're like, all right, fine. I won't eat my dessert first. Like, I get it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but but the, the funny part, if you, if you watch the Ice Age story, it was like, it was almost the same thing. Like there was these monsters chasing these monster fish that were woken up and they were chasing the, uh, the lion and the, the mammoth. Mm-hmm. I, I, but I just, I, so I've really gone off the, no, you need, there. there should be like an, a, like a co-writer credit here. Yeah. To, the, the, the Gaga, yeah, like, you know, like, was that somebody listening to an Indian story? But, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. What were we saying about trust? Um, so, as we get out of here, I want to end with the same question that we've asked all of our guests, which is, 
you know, for, for organizations like Elevate who are trying to figure out how to take the tangible tools that they have and provide those tools for people in different parts of this land, what advice or guidance or, you know, experience have you gained through your work that you would wish an organization like Elevate would take into what they do? It seems like for affordable housing, you get, I, I don't want to say, you know, every uh, traveling salesman that has the next greatest, you know, it's like, you know, space blankets for your attic, you know, and <laughs> magnets for your electric box and dome houses, you know, and, and you, you get all these like space age things, you know, like, oh, this is going to be the next great thing. And even credible solar projects, you know, oh, we're going to go to micro inverters and, you know, here's a high efficiency thermal solar collector that does both and it keeps your thermal panel cool for more efficiency you know so you always have like the coolest products forward but i think we're you know the advice to elevate what we've seen and we're trying and tried you know for years and years to develop a sustainable house that has you know low vocs that has uh, as close to net zero as we can you know it doesn't have to just be for the rich that through common sense building practices and you know affordable building practices, that's where is our goal. And working with Elevate, that's what we're hoping to do, is to have these same high quality homes built for low income families. And again, to you know, if they're low income, you know, for for whatever reason, to make that as affordable as you can is is means one less bill they have to pay or the ability to pay that bill. The electric companies charge, it doesn't matter what side of town you live in, they're charging you that 12 cents a kilowatt, you know, and for years, low-income families have been in less insulated houses and maybe in the houses that were built by the lowest bidder, so might not necessarily be, um, you know, the most efficient where, you know, in that, that adage, you know, the rich get richer, or maybe it's because they're not spending because they have, again, a high quality home. But that's where I, I love the efforts that Elevate are doing and reaching out. Elevate was one of the first groups to say, no, that makes sense. You know, that's exactly what we're doing here in electrification. You know, one of their goals is the, you know, electrification of, of the home going out and, and trying to share these common sense approaches uh, is, is something else. Again, they're not, they're not out there saying, oh yeah, you know, let, let's, let's wrap the house on aluminum, you know, or, or anything like that, you know? So they're really looking at what successes are and, and what people have, have found on the affordable side uh, and uh, that's so that's kind of refreshing of just what, what I witnessed and seeing their their mission. A lot of times, you know, I can't fault people um, for trying to do good, but they forget that Native Americans exist, you know, because it's not necessarily in the mind front. And so, like in this infrastructure bill, we had to make calls and calls and calls, you know, to even our, our state representatives saying, don't forget to put and Native American tribes. Don't forget to put and Native American tribes. And a lot of times these great bills come out and they're like, oh, I didn't say Native Americans. And then you submit a grant and then some federal agencies say, well, it doesn't really have that Native Americans. Have you applied through your state? And we're like, well, you know, my my country is the Ho-Chunk Nation. <laughs> and, and so um, I think more and more of the um, uh, lawmakers are remembering to put Native Americans in, but we still have huge discrepancies in, in funding and, and aid. And as cool as, as it may sound like what HHCDA does, there's so much more that we can do. And there's so much, you know, that we're learning, you know, and again, like Ho-Chunk's learned by mistakes and we've made tons of mistakes. And so I don't want to give the impression that what we do here, like, oh yeah, we know everything, you know, and everything. I think that's where we, 
really valued working with Elevate because we're able to pick up on things that uh, Elevate has said, you know, what about this way? And just different ways that we can keep trying to do things better. Big thanks to Neil Whitegold for chopping it up with us on this episode of Climate Changemakers. You know, once ice ages are getting referenced, that means we've gone there. So really appreciate Neil for all of his knowledge and expertise in the work that he's doing. I was really interested in some of the tensions or contradictions that he's talking about working through, uh, particularly that notion of ownership, of how that may not actually align with some of the ideals and historical traditions that came to this land before colonization, uh, but also the practical need for folks to take care of their families, take care of their households, and to build wealth in a society with a particular economy. Yeah, and I love combining that practicality with this thousand-year vision of what's actually going to be important. I thought that was really beautiful. Like we said in the intro, you can find out more at hhcda.com. Make sure that you subscribe to Climate Changemakers wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our other show, Ergo, A-I-R-G-O, wherever you get your podcasts. Just type that in. Support the work of Elevate at elevatenp.org. And we'll be back with a couple more episodes in this second season of Climate Changemakers. Much love to the people. Peace.